Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. I remember after the fall of the Soviet Union, uh, the national, former National Security Advisor with Jimmy Carter, President Carter, uh, Zbigniew Brzezinski, was being interviewed on the McNeil Air News Hour, which was a PBS production at the time, and a nightly news program. And of course, uh, you know, he'd stayed involved in interest, interest in national security matters uh, long after President Carter was out of office. But either McNeil Lair asked him, why did the Soviet Union uh, collapse? And I found it interesting that he talked about Soviet-style communism. Now, at that time, everybody was saying communism has fallen. And with that little phrase, Soviet-style communism, he alerted me to a, an incredible fact, which is communism didn't end with the collapse of the Soviet Union. And we're seeing that in spades right now with, of course, the People's Republic of China. Joining me to discuss victims of communism is Ambassador Andrew Bremberg. He is president and CEO of the Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation. He's previously served as the representative of the United States to the Office of the United Nations and other international organizations in Geneva. And prior to that work at the U.N., he served as assistant to the president and director of the Domestic Policy Council for the executive office of the president during the Trump administration. He previously served as policy advisor and counsel on nominations for the office of Senate Majority Leader. He's a graduate of the Franciscan University of Steubenville and received his uh, law degree from the Catholic University of America. Ambassador Bremberg, good to have you with me. Thanks. So great to be with you, Al. Thank you for having me. Tell us, first of all, uh, about the organization Victims of Communism and a little bit about its history and how you how you ended up there. Yeah, well, we are a uh, education nonprofit that was actually chartered by Congress back in 1993 at the end of the Cold War, as you heard, as you were just describing, mm-hmm. at the fall of the Soviet Union, um, meant to help memorialize the more than 100 million victims of communist regimes over the last century. Uh, and uh, since that time, we, as an organization, erected a memorial, physical memorial statue here in Washington, D.C., not just blocks from our nation's Capitol building, uh, dedicated to all those victims, and has since uh, developed an education program to help educate Americans about communism, as well as research programs that do uh, active research on communism still uh, in place today. And then lastly, our latest development has been uh, just this summer in June, we opened the first of its kind, Victims of Communism Museum, yeah. here in Washington, D.C., just two blocks from the White House. And wow. as you mentioned, uh, I joined Victims of Communism last year when I left government after serving as an ambassador to the U.N., where I got to see uh, quite up close and personal the challenge posed uh, by communism today. Yeah. It is. It's. It struck me for many, many years now how strange it is that when we think of the horrors of the 20th century, it's Hitler and the Nazis that normally comes to mind first, and certainly t- t- terrible uh, anti-human uh, or, uh, administration there and regime. But uh, the victims of communism far outweigh the victims of Nazism, don't they? Uh, on a sheer numeric scale, uh, absolutely. I mean, thankfully, 
the Nazis were defeated, relatively speaking, as quickly as they were in World War II, and that ended the death and horror of Nazism. But unfortunately, communism then ruled half of Europe, Russia, and even most of Southeast Asia, including China, for decades afterwards. The type of murderous ideology that was in place there um, continued on for decades and decades, long past the end of End of, the, end of World War II and the end of the Nazis, and unfortunately, is still present in China today. Yeah, you again worked in uh, international affairs as uh, ambassador uh, to the Office of the United Nations and other international organizations in Geneva. T- tell us a little bit about the difficulty of the United States' difficulty of making its case when it's face-to-face with ongoing resistance and refusal from regimes like that of uh, Xi Jinping in China, in Beijing? So, I mean, th- this, is, this is the biggest challenge the United States faces today. It's right. the challenge of the Chinese Communist Party in a growing, research and very aggressive Chinese government uh, today that has very, very different worldview, from not just from economics and security and geopolitics, but very basic fundamental human rights. I mean, right. this was something that was quite clear when I worked in the U.N. context, you know, where you have the Human Rights Council, you have the whole office called the High Commissioner for Human Rights, um, and where China works, you know, in a very astute way to change the nature of human rights. And when I was there, it was very clear. A decade ago, prior to Xi Jinping. Uh, becoming the the current leader of China, China's kind of foreign policy in the UN setting you could basically describe kind of more like a turtle strategy, where it would just kind of sit there. It didn't want to be looked. You know, it didn't want anyone talking about it. It would hide in its shell. If you poked at it, it would snap at you, and that was it. Very defensive strategy. But as a, a lot of people have talked about now, they're kind of wolf warrior diplomacy. They took a much more aggressive turn in the international you know, UN setting to try to actually not just defend themselves, um, but to co-opt and change the international norms and standards around how the international community talks about things like human rights. Mm -hmm. And that's where they've sought to try to change the definitions and norms to, to, to claim that collective rights, or the rights to development, some of the language they use, are equal human rights and can be more important than individual rights, which, of course, for any Westerner, particularly for an American, the notion of collective rights being as important as individual rights is just a complete um, complete fabrication. Right. Once you go down that road, there are no rights. Right. Right? Right. The rights of any individual can easily be explained away uh, in any instance mm-hmm. um, for a greater service of so-called societal or, or collective rights. That's right. That's right. Uh the power to define is the power to control was a, a popular political phrase in late 1960s. So they're interested in def- redefining what is meant by human rights. Um, th- of course, the, the Muslim world is interested in redefining that way, too. And I assume uh, Russia is interested in redefining the, uh, the traditional Western notion of human rights. How appealing is this uh, on the international scene? 
You know, I, I, I think it's something that um, when, I, when I first arrived, it was very disappointing to see how both appealing or, frankly, how naive uh, many other Western countries found that uh, they took a naive approach and found it uh, appealing. Um, but by the end, and I think, I think more recently, um, as more and more of China's behavior has just become more grossly obvious and transparent, mm-hmm. there's be, there's begun to be an understanding um, of the of the seriousness and the threat that this poses. So while, while I fear, you know, there was a lot of naivete, I think among many thinking that, oh, this sounds good, um, these kind of collective rights and rights to development. While, while there are still elements of that in, in Europe, I think, um, and other Western you know, democracies, I think there is a greater attention and understanding now that how the Chinese and others can use that uh, to basically neuter the entire concept of human rights. Mm-hmm. In May, uh, you released the... Um Xinjiang police files. Tell us what those yes. were and why they're significant. This is absolutely incredible. So, um, you know, Xinjiang is the northwestern region of China where China has been engaged in a genocide of an ethnic minority called the Uyghurs that are a Muslim minority mm-hmm. um, and, and, and other smaller minorities in the region as well. And by Labeling the genocide, and the United States State Department, both at the under at the end of the Trump administration and under the Biden administration, have labeled what they're doing a genocide. Um, but not enough action has taken place. Uh, other countries have not formally labeled it a genocide, um, and the United States government has not yet taken sufficient action to address the you know the genocide, these gross crimes against humanity. And today, upwards of two million people are held and detained in concentration camps in northwestern China. The police files that we released in May were the extraordinary, first-of-its-kind hack of Chinese police state computer systems, where a hacker, we were not the hacker, um, but a hacker hacked tens of thousands of documents off of these computers and delivered them to our foundation. And our research team, led by Dr. Adrian Zenz and the rest of our team, went to work analyzing and translating these documents, and this cache of documents we then began to make publicly available and release at the end of May. Um, this trove of documents was just truly uh, astonishing. I mean, it showed in clear, not, not, not black and white, black and white and color photos, yeah. what is happening in Xinjiang. This cache included the first photos from inside the detention camps. This included internal security documents laying out their security protocols for how they detain people, as well as spreadsheets that contained hundreds of thousands of individual people that had been processed through and either detained or uh, examined for detainment in just two counties out of the entire region. That made clear that um, all the previous estimates of between one and two million people had been detained were clearly accurate to conservative estimates for how many people had been detained um, in in Xinjiang. And, of course, all of this is under the context of China has been lying to the international community, saying that what's happening is just what they call vocational education training. That's been their big lie. When, when, When this story first came up, you know, four or five years ago, their first lie was nothing was happening. 
Then when satellite images were shown of what are these brand new, massive, prison-looking-like compounds, they had to shift and said, oh, those are our vocational education training centers. (laughs) And these documents now show no vocational education center looks like this on the inside in terms of the security protocols, the specific description of the types of guns used, and, and how they will make sure they maintain security, both from internal escape attempts or any potential external threats to the compound, mm-hmm. um, as well as um, leaked and never-before-snow-known speeches by senior CCP officials wow. and government leaders directly to the officials in Xinjiang, saying, we know you're under-resourced and overcrowded. You're doing a good job. You need to keep doing it. We'll provide you more resources. One of the quotes in one of these you know, amazing speeches was, and, get a security incident. Uh, Andrew, I've got I've to cut it off because the music's coming up. How do people get in touch with you? 